Let us open the precious word of God to the words of David. That is the words of David from the Holy Spirit to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and to a verse very important to our church and very important to this particular sermon series. We are dealing with the only right worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Most never think about their worldview, but they still view the news media, the world, education, politics, wars, health, their lives, relationships, how they respond in a certain way by a mechanism that they inherited, a mechanism that they learned from their parents, or a choice of some philosophical school or of some religion. A worldview is the rules that help us view the world and make our decisions. Psalm 119 and verse 128. The David that I introduced to you a few minutes ago wrote from God these words. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I am presenting to you the only right worldview. We esteem these things that will give us a worldview, and we hate every false worldview. A worldview is a person's view of the world, life, origins, purpose, morality, religion, the future. It's the set of facts, presuppositions, principles, and rules for a complete framework for life. It answers questions like, where did I come from? What is my purpose? Is there a God? What is my future? What is the goal for living? It's true purpose and value. And how do I achieve it? A worldview are the assumptions of life, the assumptions of morality, religion, that form opinions of ethics, politics, and all of life. It forms your beliefs, how you interpret events, how you respond, and how you relate. No one in this room is capable of memorizing 45 axioms and being able to apply them in the right order when an event arises. However, if we learn these and learn these and review these and remind our family of these every day and by exercise looking at news media events, we exercise ourselves to discern what is right and wrong, good and evil. Then when we are faced with a decision to make or we're asked our opinion on some event in the world, we will have the mechanism in place to give them the right answer. A two-year-old has a worldview that he's the center of the world. A secular humanist thinks the material world is all there is. A Buddhist goals and worldview are to reach nirvana, where he can change into nothingness the height of superiority of that great religion. A biblical or Christian worldview depends on definitions of the Bible. We are King James Bible Christians. And the definition of Christian 
which we just heard about extensively from our brother Zach. Our worldview is the broad biblical framework that forms parameters for all our thinking and all our conduct. And that's what we're learning right now. We've already had eight sermons, and we've covered 14 axioms. And we're going to pick up the pace today because the lesson is not in the details. The lesson is what axioms do affect the right Christian worldview? It's not the details. Some of these subjects could be preached on for weeks, and yet we just want to remind ourselves, yep, that should be an axiom. That is huge. I tend to neglect it. I sometimes forget that one. And by the time we're done, you're going to have that little table in front of you that's going to have 45. The Lord willing. Non-biblical worldviews assault us every day by worldly and satanic efforts. And our flesh happens to like them. Most, most Christians have corrupted views of history. They have corrupted views. They don't corrupt them. They just have corrupted thinking about history, law, politics, science, ethics, God, men, sin, relationships, holiness, so forth. True Christians must and will examine every input that compromises a strict biblical worldview. Now, there are limitations to this study. There are limitations to its depth of each axiom because I can't preach each one of these subjects. God is, how long should we take? That was number one. So there's a limit to its depth. The breadth is how many axioms, and so you, you've got to put a limit on it, and I think 45 is probably too big, but uh, we're going to go with that for right now. This cannot, this study in series of messages, cannot and should not be like our church articles of faith, like our ancient landmarks, which go into great detail, and like our church history, which went into great detail. Let me give you an example. For ethics, Christian ethics, the Lord has shown us 30 precious principles. Every one of them is precious wisdom. But we shouldn't have those 30 as individual axioms. There's only one axiom, and we're not going to get it today, but it's coming, and that's Bible ethics, or ethics only by the Bible, right. not by anyone else. But in that umbrella of one axiom, we are including the 30 principles God's taught us and whatever other ones He has for us in the future. I hope you can understand the limitations on depth and breadth. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We have covered so far, you have it in front of you, these wonderful rules, axioms of our worldview. God is. In the beginning, God. We like the first four words because this axiom doesn't need the fifth word. In the beginning, God. God is. God gave Scripture. Otherwise, we wouldn't know the rest. So we got to stick Scripture in at number two. God created all things. Indeed, He did. 
Scripture is absolute truth because some of the things that we are going to hold as axioms following number four are, are heavy and weighty. Number five, Jehovah is the only God. Now we believe that Jehovah is the only God because of number two and number four. God gave Scripture. Scripture is absolute truth. So we don't know of a Yahweh because we can't find Yahweh in our Bibles. This is how it works. Number six, God created all things for Himself. Tremendous axiom. Proverbs 16.4, Revelation 4.11 and other places. God rules over all things. He governs. He disposes. He crushes. He blesses according to His own will. He's the governor and has absolute dominion over all things, which is number seven. Number eight, Satan is a real, active foe. He's not something to be joked about, and we should never tell jokes about the devil. Number nine, Satan hates God, Satan hates truth, and he hates us. That means we have a diabolical foe in the spirit realm that is more intelligent, more powerful than we are. Number 10, death and corruption came by sin. So death is a fact of sin and corruption is a fact of sin and you're not going to alter it by any of your professions because it's a function of sin. Number 11, man hates truth for lies. Because of total depravity, man prefers lies to truth. And so we see that in the world and we have that propensity in ourselves to believe something that's false faster than something that's true, and we want a war against it. And we want to remember it when we look at the world. How can they believe that? Because man loves lies more than he does truth. Number 12, God saved unconditionally. Number 13, because of number 12, religion has a limited role. What we mean by that is our religion does not dictate the terms of eternal life. God does by the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the cross of Calvary. We do not give people a set of rules to keep in order to go to heaven, like other religions. So religion has a limited role, and therefore there's no priesthood or a pastor that controls your eternal destiny. He can warn you of what your eternal destiny likely is by your conduct, but He can't control it like other religions control it. So religion has a limited role Number 14, Jesus is the preeminent one of our religion. While religion has a limited role, it has unlimited glory for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to number 15, and number 15 is this. Holy Spirit is God with us. And you've got to squeeze it into that little space for number 15. Holy Spirit is God with us. And that's why we're at John 14, And this is not just a list of doctrines we believe. This is a list of axioms that affect our worldview. There is a powerful spirit in the world. And if you have a worldview that doesn't involve the Holy Spirit, your worldview is bankrupt. It's got to include the power of the Holy Spirit. John 14 and verse 26. John 14, 26. But the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now that is a tremendous influence in the world and we can't ignore it. 
So it's number 15. The Holy Spirit is God with us. Better yet, what is it? Holy Spirit is God in us. Amen. Because he was with the apostles, but not in them yet, like he was going to be in them. Chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So there is a powerful spirit that loves truth. Now there's another powerful spirit that hates truth. That's the devil. Is there any comparison in power of the Holy Spirit and the devil? No. Which one do we have in our worldview? The Holy Spirit. So that it can be said in 1 John chapter 4, greater is he that is in you than he, referring to that other spirit, that is in the world. We cannot forget this. God is not watching from a distance. Life is not a natural equation. There is a spirit that is available. And if you're born again, and you're the only ones I'm talking to anyway, reprobates do benefit though. Can you see that on your little page? If a reprobate keeps the worldview that we're giving, they can have the best life possible on earth being a reprobate. That's not the kind of life I want, because the greatest joy is God in you and speaking to your heart and shedding abroad His love in your heart and causing you joy and excitement that nothing in the world can offer. Amen. Matthew Bowling is an 18-year-old white boy down there in the state of Texas, and uh, he goes to a little high school called Jesuit Strake. And he just broke the record for the 100 meters for America at 18 and being white. They're calling him White Lightning. And it's a tremendous story. The, meter, the, the record for 100 meters has stood for 29 years. Can you imagine all the athletes that have run against that record for the last 29 years? And Matthew Bowling took it down. He's a great, great looking kid. At the Texas 6A championship is when he set this record last weekend. He runs the 400 too. He runs the 200 as well. He did win the state championship at the same meet in the long jump. He did bring his team in the 4x100 from 7th to 3rd in just 100 meters. He is going to the state of Georgia to run on their track team in the fall. He was given the baton by the fastest 4x400 relay team in America, 30 meters down. 30 meters down. you got to see it to believe it. That's the way you want to get the baton. You never want to be 30 meters in front because then the rabbit is out front. He got the baton 30 meters down and he won it by five. And that was the fastest 4x400 team in the country. It's a great story. You say, what in the world? You never tell us junk like that. Eh, for this purpose. I'm trying to explain the Holy Spirit. Reading Obadiah. Reading 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18 is a whole nother experience. Right. Do I love hitting YouTube and watching Matthew Bowling? 
create one more great white hope? <laughs> sure I do. Do I love seeing a young man get the baton 30 meters down and winning by five against the fastest team in the country? Sure I do. But what I sent you yesterday in 2 Corinthians 6 and, and the little book of Obadiah is fantastic. Amen. And there's only one thing that makes that difference. Two. My changed heart and the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Spirit by the Word. It's the Spirit with the Word. It's the Spirit and the Word that fills us with joy that is just wonderful. And so we've got to have a worldview that includes this powerful Spirit that's God Himself. He is not less than God. He's not just a part of God. He is God with us and in us. And He can shed abroad God's love that you are one of His children and fill every nook and cranny of your heart. If you don't feel it, know it, experience it, it's your fault completely. Because the power is there, but we can quench it and grieve it, so that axiom number 15 includes us taking care of the Holy Spirit by not grieving Him, that's personal, not quenching Him, that's the fire and the influence and the passion of Him in our lives. I only want to take a few minutes on these. How long could we preach on the Holy Spirit? We could preach a long time, and I'm not going to do that. Life is much more than just a natural equation. The world cannot receive the Spirit, for they do not see Him or know Him. Does it say that right here in these chapters? It certainly does. I'm not going to read the verses. They don't see Him. They don't know Him. He doesn't deal with them. He deals with us. I mean, He punishes them. He brings judgment upon them. Our worldview cannot be limited to what we see, or we are as blind as they are blind. We've got to see what is unseen and believe it by God's Word. And I trust that most of you know it by experience, that there is a powerful Holy Spirit that affects us on the inside. By His power, in and through the apostles, they turned the pagan world upside down. We are not human animals. We are spiritual beings with God in us. And the world has another spirit in them. And all pets have yet a different spirit in them. And when they die, their spirits go straight down into the dirt and they don't go anywhere else because they don't even have a spirit to make account of. You can look into your little pet's eyes and you can imagine whatever you want, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there. They are an irrational creature. And so this separates us because there's the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit provides light, knowledge, truth, wisdom, power, joy, love, hope. And I've only started the list of what the Holy Spirit can do. That is a powerful worldview. In prison, chained, shackled, and bleeding, naked and without care, rats running over your body and cockroaches in every corner, you can be singing and praising and praying to God by the power of the Holy Ghost. Charismatics have made a mockery of the Holy Ghost, but we know He is our spirit. Let's not grieve or quench Him, and this is key. And He can help you overcome the world, or He can turn to be your enemy. One last reference is Isaiah 63. 
it's first John. I want you to go to Isaiah 63. It's first John 4, 4 that says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so it's got to be part of our worldview. What if we have grieved him or quenched him? Then the power that is in us that is greater than the world is not there. Oh, now we're vulnerable. I mean, we're seriously vulnerable to their worldview. We are seriously vulnerable to be the terrified do-nothings. We're, ter- we're seriously vulnerable to be the arrogant, envious do-nothings. Do you know how David did what he did? It tells you. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Well, you don't have to wait for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon you. He's already inside you. Something David didn't have like we have it, guaranteed with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Isaiah 63 and verse 10. Brethren, look at this. But they rebelled. Don't rebel against me today. These are God's words. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. See, you can quench him, you can grieve him, and that means you vexed him. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Now, we've already got the devil against us if we get the Holy Spirit against us. That's the church. You say, I don't don't believe that's the church. Okay, let's get verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Now, you love verse 9, but I want you to love verse 10 as well. But... That church that he took such good care of vexed his Holy Spirit so he was their enemy and fought against them. Do you, know the, do you know that the Holy Spirit can make you miserable? Some of you don't smile. We all know it. We see it. We're sorry for you. You don't smile. See, a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. Some of you don't smile. So there's a spirit problem. We don't want the Spirit fighting against us. There is no pain that men can inflict on the human body that can match the pain that God can inflict on your soul, heart, and mind by His Spirit when He fights against you. Now, I just took twice as long as I should have with axiom number 15, but that's the truth. Do you understand the importance of that being in a proper worldview? It's got to be there. This is not a list of doctrines we believe. This is a list of facts that influence how we view life. And when you know the power of the Holy Spirit, you can take life on right in its face. The Spirit will see you through. He's never disappointed anyone. We've disappointed Him all the time. Number 16. Kingdom of God is here. Number 16. Kingdom of God is here. And when you're done writing, we want to go to Daniel 2.44. Kingdom of God is here. We are part of a political entity. We have a king, and we are his citizens. So our worldview is, we are already part of a nation. We're already part of a kingdom. We already have a king, we already have a leader, we already have a ruler, and we're turning to Daniel chapter 2. Kingdom of God is here. The world has been filled with empire ambition. Adolf Hitler wanted the Third Reich. 
and it was going to last a thousand years. <laughs> yes. Well, the Lord had other plans for that little tiny group of rebellious Germans and what we did to them. The Thessalonians were accused of being enemies of Caesar because part of the gospel message preached in Thessalonica, according to Acts chapter 17, was there was another king named Jesus. Kings typically are very jealous of their throne. They do not like hearing about other kings. Herod did not like hearing that there was born a king of the Jews because his title was king of the Jews. Appreciate Pilate just a little. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You should change that to say that he said he was the king of the Jews. What I have written, I have written. That's our savior. Amen. He was the king of the Jews and he's the king of the Gentiles right now because he's ruling with a rod of iron and we believe that. Daniel chapter 2, you know we could go for a while in the kingdom of God, and I would love to do so. Whatever pain that you're experiencing, thinking that I'm cheating you, I can see it in your face, Jonah. It's a good, it's a good face. Whatever pain you're feeling, I'm feeling more. Preparing this, I have limited myself to 10 points only per axiom. When each one deserves a sermon series, but I've got that linked. I've got the sermon series linked to each axiom. Kingdom of God is here. Look at Daniel 2.44. Is my son and brother Chris Carnell here? Do you remember Daniel 2.44? I know you love that verse. And I love you because you love that verse. We've spoken about it over the years and decades. Daniel 2.44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Amen and amen. In this particular chapter of the Bible, there was an image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, and it had gold for Babylon, it had silver for Persia, it had brass for Greece, it had iron for Rome, and it had a stone cut out of a mountain without hands, that hit it in the feet, which means it hit it in the Roman Empire when the God, kingdom of God was established on this earth in a different way than ever before. When it would consume the nations, it wouldn't just be localized as the kingdom of God under David or the other kings of Israel, but it would take the world and members of every nation, tongue, tribe, and people, under a new king, the son of David, named Jesus Christ. Right. This is a fabulous verse. Amen. And there's an outline on our website entitled, The Five Kingdoms. And they're taught in Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7. It came by John and Jesus, and it's glorious. Look at Luke chapter 16 for a verse that you should all know. But we need to remind ourselves that the kingdom of God came with John. John's first words were, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at least 2,000 years away and will be realized in the millennium. When we Jews will have the preeminence again 
and the Gentiles will be our wood choppers and water haulers. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's how much at hand it was. And you know there are many verses, you're just getting a couple to remind you. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. The Old Testament mosaic system of church worship and the kingdom of Israel lasted for 1,500 years until John the Baptist. Since that time, since John the Baptist opened his mouth in the wilderness of Judea, since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. You can't press into something that isn't there. And so the kingdom of God is here. So part of our worldview is there is a kingdom unseen by the world that we are part of, who, that has a king unseen of or unrecognized and unadmitted by the world that we know very, very well. We know how he rules. We know his mother. We know his legal grandfather. We know his legal great-great-grandfather. We know the city and circumstances of his birth. We know the town in which he was raised. Do you know how much we know about our king? We know his character. We know his conduct. We know how he died. We know he rose from the dead, but he's the head of our kingdom. Amen. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. So we look at everything differently. Our king is the prince of the kings of the world. Amen. Our king is king of kings. We don't care about worldly kings because our king plays with them like pawns on a chessboard and dashes them in pieces by his rod of iron rule. The kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, includes all baptized believers. Churches are those baptized believers joined together by mutual consent. Though invisible and in men, this is what Jesus said about it, it doesn't come with observation. Though invisible and in men, it is unlike all other kingdoms and far superior to them. The kingdom restored David's kingdom with his son as the king of it, and the citizens expanded to include us Gentile wretches. You say, where is that in the Bible? The most important dispensational passage in the whole Bible. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, it's the council at Jerusalem. They are addressing the Jews that are saying that these converted Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. Peter begins first and explains how he went to the household of Cornelius and God made a visible demonstration that Gentiles were now in the kingdom. The apostle Paul and Barnabas get up and explain what God did by them among the Gentiles. James brings us the conclusion, and this is powerful. That millennial junk that I was taught as a child, that world's most unusual university in this city that preaches the same millennial heresy, taught that it's all out in the future. Jesus isn't king. Jesus isn't reigning. He doesn't have David's throne. He doesn't have the rod of iron rule. And when he does, we're going to be second-rate citizens of it. Animal sacrifices will be restored. 
They'll be looking back to the cross. Oh, there's, there's no animal that you can kill that sheds any light on looking back at the cross. Acts 15, verse 13, And after they had held their peace, Paul and Barnabas finished declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And when they had held their peace, Acts 15, 13, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, Cornelius and household. And to this agree the words of the prophets, oh, as it is written. I love Bible commentary of the Bible Amen. right here. This is out of Amos. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. James takes what Peter said by personal experience and what Paul and Barnabas said and said God prophesied this in Amos when he said he was going to rear up the kingdom of David again and put David's son on the throne of it and it's going to be built with Gentiles. Right. It's now. James was saying this is that. I'm waiting for you to ask me a question. Preacher? But it uses the future tense verbs in verses 16 and 17. We have been over that before, but preacher, it uses future tense verbs. Of course, because Amos wrote it before John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And James is kindly quoting it correctly with future tense verbs, but it was no more future because James was saying, this has been fulfilled by Peter and the conversion of Cornelius' household. Amen. We have a kingdom. There are men in the name of Jesus that steal our worldview from us. Dallas Theological Seminary is the number one institution in this country. The Schofield Reference Bible is the number one document that steals our kingdom from us. And that world's most unusual university down the street steals our kingdom from us. So number 16 is the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of Jesus Christ and the local outposts or churches of Jesus Christ where those citizens have banded together by mutual consent create the greatest human connection on earth. We have a connection around the whole world. Jesus rules nations now with a rod of iron, but he is soon coming to destroy them all. Those citizens of nations like the United States of America, where we are citizens, we are separate from them, and we believe that state churches are entirely wrong because their little kingdoms are trying to interfere in our kingdom. And our kingdom rules over all. God loves those who love his kingdom. Psalm 122, if you'll love his kingdom, you will prosper. If you will seek his kingdom first, he'll add all other things in your life that are needful to you. It's not attendance. It is life in Christ, because Christ is our king. So much more could be said. Number 17. Perpetual kingdom war. Perpetual kingdom war 
is axiom number 17. There is violent antagonism and violent enmity between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's out there. And when you push our kingdom, if you push our kingdom in your family, if you push our kingdom on the job, if you push our kingdom in society, you'll find out there's violent antagonism. They really do hate us. I thought everybody loved me. Just talk about Jesus Christ and his kingdom rules just a little, and you'll find out that they hate you. Right. You say, well, what if I do it nicely instead of the way you and Zach do it? It still doesn't matter. You can't be, was Jesus nice? Do you know what they did for him, to him for talking about kingdom rules? They crucified him on the cross, even though he was perfectly innocent. Perpetual kingdom war. Look at 1 John 3. 1 John chapter 3. Just a few verses to remind us of the violent antagonism. There is perpetual kingdom war. Since Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel. Cain was of the kingdom of this world and Satan was its head. Abel was of the kingdom of God and was following his rules. And the one killed the other. In the very beginning, the first generation born on earth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, the devil, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Why did Cain kill his brother? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now you've got to be kidding me. How could someone who is wrong kill someone who is right? That doesn't make sense. Is that possible? They did it to Jesus. Was Jesus right? Were they wrong? So the wrong kills the right. That's the perpetual war that we're in. And Cain killed Abel, even though Cain was wrong and Abel was right. Verse 13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. If that happened in that first family, marvel not. Don't be surprised. Don't be astonished. Don't be confused when the world hates you because you are part of this perpetual kingdom war by being in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are united against us. And the day is coming soon when they are going to gather themselves together again because Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit where he has been held back from deceiving the nations and all the nations of the earth are going to come together and surround the camp of the saints. It'll be all out kingdom war and we could be in it. We could be in it. Listen, what happens is because of prophetic teachers writing comic books. When I say kingdom war, you imagine M1 Abrams rolling into our parking lot. That is so childish. That is an infantile view of the world. It is a spiritual conflict. And they're coming after us right now. Bible Christians can be hated legitimately by anyone. Anything can be written about them. And the world is uniting. LGBT 
spreads like wildfire and the gospel doesn't spread like wildfire, there's hardly anyone left that believes Bible Christianity. I mean, real Bible Christianity. And they will go up on the breadth of the earth and encompass the camp of the saints. Don't think of all the Christians on Paris Mountain and tanks surrounding it at Pleasantburg Highway and State Park Road. You're just messed up. You've read too many Hal Lindsey books, too many left behind movies. It's a spiritual war. The devil already knows that a physical conflict doesn't work. He's smarter than you are and all those writers. It's going to be a spiritual war. Did a man already stand in this pulpit this morning and say you have a war to fight every day? Right. Yes, we do, because it's a spiritual war. So put on the whole armor of God and stand. Stand your ground and take the sword of the Spirit and let's fight back. We are in kingdom war. The Tower of Babel is an example of the world uniting against God's revealed will. What did God do? He messed them up badly by confounding their languages. The Flood is an example of when the kingdom of God was mingling with the kingdom of this world, and so He drowned the world so the kingdom of God couldn't marry them. It is Satan against Jesus, darkness against light, evil against good, lies against truth. Martyrs are the evidence of it from the Dark Ages. We are strangers and pilgrims here, right. which, which is a terminology of the Bible that we ought to remember. We offend God by liking this world because it is such an arch enemy of His. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We can use it to our profit. We win in the end, but we may die before we get there to final victory. Are you with all that? Mutual hatred describes it in Proverbs 29. Time is, is gone for me on this axiom. Sides have spirits and angels. They have a spirit. It's the devil himself. We have a spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. They have angels. They're the fallen angels. We have angels. They're the elect and holy angels. What a fight. There is conflict seen in the world and in personal events. If you're, if you're looking, you can see in the world where the spirit of the devil is taking over people and the spirit of the Lord is withdrawing and holding back. And we see it in personal events in our lives and in our family. And we want to teach our families the power of the Holy Spirit in kingdom warfare. Right. We are pacifists in this fight, meaning we don't fight physically, we fight spiritually. We love the Bill of Rights, which gives Muslims the right to have a mosque in Greenville though we hate their doctrine greatly. So much more could be said. This can be said. Is there not a cause? Amen. Number 18. Worship is spirit truth. Worship is spirit truth. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that both her people and the Jews were wrong. In John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, I don't even want to read it for the sake of time. Just write this down, number 18. Worship is spirit truth, and it changes our religion from all other religions. By, by combining spirit truth, that John 4 is just a perfect illustration of a conversation between Jesus and one woman 
where he said the Jews aren't worshiping correctly and your people don't have a clue about what's right. The Jews weren't worshiping correctly because they were worshiping externally by outward ceremonies and their heart and spirit wasn't involved. When it says spirit, truth, that is not the Holy Spirit, that is our spirit. That God wants to be worshiped by our spirit, being loved by our heart, being loved in our soul, rather than going through outward motions of smell, sight, audio, touch, taste, and so forth, which the Israelites had. So he told the woman, the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not happening in Jerusalem because they're leaving out the spirit. It isn't happening in Mount Gerizim, which was the Samaritan's place of worship, because it's not in truth. You don't have a right to a temple and an altar. And Have I preached all this to you before? Yes, I have indeed. Lord, you know I've tried once in a while to be a pastor. The Jews were wrong for their ceremonies, their external religion, overlooking worship in spirit. And let me tell you, Isaiah is going to teach, that, teach us this from the first chapter to the last chapter. Yep. He is going to say, I hate your feasts. Right. They stink. You are like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. Because he doesn't want external worship. When I talk about the foam rubber that's underneath you and you warming foam rubber, attendance doesn't mean anything to him. Yes, of course, attendance is a requirement, but it doesn't mean anything to him because he wants our hearts. He wants our lips. He wants our glory. He wants us engaged. He wants us passionate for in his worship. Paul exposed the inferiority of Moses' form of worship in the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians. New Testament worship, even with Holy Spirit power, is to be done with the understanding. It's amazing in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, with all the power in that church and all their charismatic gifts, he wanted it all limited by, it's got to be with the understanding as well. So when you watch these babbling, barking, drunk charismatics, and there's no understanding, they are so contrary to the Word of God. And do not let them take away from you the proper place and role of the Holy Spirit of the living God. God's a God of truth. Erroneous or false worship offends Him. He requires true worship. This, point, this axiom is how I'm cheating. See, I'm down to 45 by combining. Can you tell? Spirit truth. I had, they were too. I had to combine them because I'm trying to limit this. Spirit truth. Spirit is engaging our inner man, is engaging our mind, is engaging our heart, is engaging our passions. Jesus Jesus blasted the nation of Israel saying, they worship me with their lips, but their, what is far from me? Their heart is far from me. So that's the spirit part of worship. So it changes us from going into a Catholic cathedral and just going through the motions and having a man up there going through the motions or a Greek Orthodox or a Russian Orthodox in all their pajamas and all their incense and they go through the motions, and they have a church language that no one can understand. And in the Russian Orthodox, you have to stand. There's no chairs. So you stand there and watch this guy in pajamas swing incense all around and go through this, these shenanigans, and they call it religion. In Russia, there's only two religions, except for a few underground Baptists. There's atheism, 
and there's Russian Orthodox. I can't really tell them apart, except the Russian Orthodox form of atheism has men in pajamas swinging incense in a language they don't understand. And I have been in one of those churches. So when a Russian, when you ask a Russian, are you a Christian? <laughs> and they say yes, ask a second question. Russian Orthodox? And then you've got them. It's pitiful. It's got to be in truth. Number 19. I'm not quite done with 18. There are not multiple ways to God or to heaven. Whenever you hear that, well, there's lots of ways to God. There's lots of ways. No, there isn't, really. There isn't at all. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, and I read it to you recently, where it says one, 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 one. No, I didn't exaggerate. Go read it. Ephesians 4, 1 through 5, there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one, 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 one. And Jude 1.3 tells us to earnestly contend for the faith. Not many faiths, one faith that was once delivered to the saints. The apostolic faith is the only faith and all others should be ridiculed, exposed, defied, rejected, and condemned by the Bible. Things highly esteemed among men, God abominates. Luke 16.15 and only a few have ever seen the truth, held to the truth, defended the truth, and perpetuated the truth. Only a few in the history of the world, all 6,000 years of it. Number 19, worship is simple, dash, orderly. You don't need the dash. You can be grammatically different. Worship is simple, orderly. Number 18 was worship is spirit, truth. Spirit, dash, truth. a compound adjective of worship. And number 19 is worship is simple, orderly. God's religion is not complicated, especially the New Testament, and it must be done orderly. Do you know 1 Corinthians 14, 40, where it says, let all things be done decently and in order. So even when the Spirit of God was fallen on Corinth and Paul admitted that you come behind no other church in the number of gifts you have in that church, Yet, all those gifts were to be used in a very organized manner so that the services were decorous, decent, and orderly. Because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God's spirit in men never gets out of control. If you had the spirit of prophecy in you, you could go for a couple, three minutes and you could sit down and shut up. And another man could get up and by the same spirit add to your two or three minutes so that the congregation could be edified. And so the Apostle Paul goes after this point very heavily in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 so that Christians should never appear like barbarians. So we pray one at a time in this church. You know, there are Baptist churches that will just unleash the congregation to pray all at one time? Why in the world would we ever do that? To sound like a bunch of barbarians and to look like barbarians. 
If we need to all pray, then we need a three-hour prayer service. Or five-hour prayer service. But we don't all pray at once. And so this is a rule of the Bible that affects our worldview on looking at religion and where our religion fits into our worldview. The Old Testament, Jesus could reduce to two commandments. That is simple. Do you think you can reduce Catholicism to two commandments? You can't reduce Catholic baptism to 40. What are the two laws that can summarize the whole law? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay. You know what Jesus said? On these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets. What a religion. What? That is just beauty simplified. The New Testament is simplicity in Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 1. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This is Paul's concern for the church at Corinth. I have read the first two verses, I am now reading the third. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Beware of philosophy, Philippians. Beware of monasticism, Colossians. Beware, beware, because the religion of Jesus Christ is very simple. Philosophy is a lying danger. Monasticism is a lying danger. Flattering titles are wrong because we're all brethren under Christ. So that whole hierarchy of the Russian Orthodox the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, and the Shriners is all in the toilet and flushed because we're all brethren. When Peter wrote about Paul, he wrote our beloved brother Paul. He did not write the great Apostle Paul. We're tempted to do that, but Paul would want us to recognize him as a brother under order of our king and the head of our church because in Matthew chapter 23, the head of our church said, Ye are all brethren. So I am Brother Crosby to your children and Brother Jonathan to you. Always. Baptist baptism is an identifying public mark, excluding 90% of those that claim to be Christians. Worship is simple, orderly. Baptist baptism. It's simplicity. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and died for me and rose again and I want to live a new life for Him. So we bury them just a few months, son, and we raise them again. He heard about Baptists in a recent assembly. He made his way straight to me. I want to be a Baptist right now. You will be in just a few months. I appreciate your amen. Do you know how simple that ordinance of baptism is? Try it in other churches. All their christening gowns and salt in the mouth and holy chrism rubbed on the forehead and godparents, it's, a, it's unbelievable the complexity they make out of the simplest ordinance of the Bible and they outnumber us. They outnumber us 
20 to 1. Just using baptism as an example. Servants, services. Our services are decent and orderly. Prophets, spirits are ruled. Barbarian junk is wrong, as the Bible tells us. Details count. Modifications are judged, but it's so simple to keep the commandments of God the way He's given us. Sincerity is nothing if known truth is ignored. So we want to take care of details. First Chronicles 15.3, David said that they were punished because they did not maintain the due order. And there's a due order to be orderly. And when you don't follow the due order, then you're disorderly. And when you're disorderly, you're thrown out of the church. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 Every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition of the apostles is thrown out. Right. That's how serious it is for us to have simple, orderly worship. There's five axioms. This, this is how we view the world, religion, the power that is in us. May the Lord bless each of you and your families to maintain a holy family where the Holy Spirit reigns as the power spirit and not the devil. And may he be reigning and exerting his power for us and not fighting against us as his enemy. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.